The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. So we are looking at Matthew 16, 13 through 26. So if you want to have your finger there, that's the main passage we'll be looking at. We'll be looking at a couple of other passages as well. We covered verses 13 to 20 in the first two weeks of this little series. Today we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26, the conclusion of this incident that Jesus had with his apostles not long before his crucifixion. Preparing for crucifixion, part three. What I was trying to emphasize, just distilling it down into our overriding theme, was in light of Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Passover, Holy Week, today Palm Sunday, just cutting to the essence of what that really is all about. I came up with this summary statement that a true disciple of Jesus, true disciple of Jesus, a true disciple, I said true disciple because there are false disciples. We know that from the scripture. False disciple is someone who says they're a Christian, but they're really not. They think they're a Christian, but they're really not. So Jesus even used that terminology, a true disciple. So he made that distinction. So a true disciple or a true Christian, someone who's truly born again, a true disciple of Jesus must understand the meaning of Jesus' death. So if you're going to be a Christian, there are prerequisites. There are conditions. And probably priority number one is understanding the meaning of Jesus' death. That is at the heart of the gospel. And this passage helps us as Jesus is explaining to his apostles the meaning of his death been the theme you can't understand the gospel apart from this you can't be a christian apart from this understanding can't have forgiveness with god and have a relationship with him apart from this there are a lot of people who say they love jesus believe in jesus but they don't understand the meaning of his death so you can't really love jesus know jesus and be a christian apart from on the one hand this simple truth his death or the meaning of his death But at the same time, it's a very complex truth, the meaning of his death. So let's go ahead and look at our outline here. We've got um, 13 through 26. This is a narrative passage. This is real history. This actually was an event that took place in the life of Jesus Christ as he was training his apostles. He had many disciples. The disciples were anybody who was willing to listen and be taught and follow Jesus, even if it was just for a short while. A disciple is a learner, doesn't mean you were necessarily born again. And within the group of the large crowd of disciples, there were apostles. There were 12 that Jesus chose out of those disciples to be his apostles. Probably a year before this incident, uh, Jesus chose, maybe even a little uh, longer than that, Jesus chose, chose 12 apostles specifically after prayer for the purpose of preparing them so that they might represent him after he leaves. They would lay the foundation of the church. So they were going to get a very specialized education and very specialized training by Jesus himself personally for more than a year, being commissioned with the goal of laying the foundation of the church, starting the church, being the first leaders and pastors and elders, let alone apostles of the first church, the 12 apostles. So uh, that's who we're dealing with here. Uh, The context, just by way of reminder, Matthew 16, Jesus is done probably over two years of ministry, maybe even two and a half. So he's nearing the finish line in terms of his earthly ministry. 
There's a huge transition. He's ministered much down in Jerusalem already over the course of two plus years. He has ministered exhaustively in his hometown and home area of Galilee and all the cities surrounding it over the course of almost two and a half plus years, going on three years. The message has been the same. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Follow me, said Jesus. And many were fascinated by that, intrigued by that message, probably more so intrigued by the way he said it, who he was, how he was different, the fact that he did miracles, the fact that he could heal. But the large majority of folks that he was talking to were rejecting him and his message with great hostility. And so we talked about that. The leaders uh, down in Jerusalem not only rejected him, they wanted to kill him or trying to kill him, have been pursuing him to arrest him for over two years now. Early on, they said that was their message. We need to shut this man down. We need to shut him up. The Jewish leaders of Jerusalem. And then the crowds in general were resisting his message more and more because they realized what he was talking about is, oh, wow, what's this sin thing? So there's just this ongoing, growing resistance to him and his message. Subtle hostility, overt hostility. So strategically now, Jesus reaches a point in his ministry, going on maybe the last six months of his ministry, he's heading to the cross, and a transition takes place in his ministry here on earth. The first two and a half plus years, it was the emphasis was public ministry. From here on out, Matthew 16 on out to his crucifixion is private ministry. And it's not to the crowds or the multitudes. It is primarily to his disciples, his apostles. Two main transitions in his ministry here so it's a private ministry to his apostles to invest a lot of personal time in them to prepare them for the fact that he's leaving and that when he leaves they need to carry on his ministry and with that transition there's a change in emphasis of jesus's teaching now almost three years into this thing there are two main themes he's going to highlight or accentuate for the next three to six months that he hasn't been talking about at all with his apostles or the disciples for over two and a half years it's it's amazing to think about Because when we ask Christians today, well, why did Jesus come 2,000 years ago? Well, to die on the cross and to start the church. Well, that's interesting because for the last, the first two and a half years of Jesus' ministry, guess what he hasn't been talking about? His death on the cross and the church. I mean, that's what our text says, Matthew 16. We already looked at one of those. For the first time after two and a half years to his apostles, he reveals to them in detail for the first time what the church is they don't even understand it yet the the other gospels tell they don't they don't even know what he's talking about but this is the first time he lays it out i came to build my church i will build my church my church will continue in continuity triumphantly according to god's will nothing not satan not death not hell not sin nothing will undermine it nothing will overcome it my church. And this is the first revelation of his church to his apostles. And it's become, but going to become a major emphasis in his teaching to them for the next three to six months as he prepares his apostles because when he leaves, they, these apostles, will start the church. They will lay the foundation of the church through the revelation of Jesus. So major truth, Jesus hasn't even talked about it. What's the other major reason Jesus was born 2,000 years ago? Scripture is clear. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave, how did the father give his son? He gave his son, we mean, we, we know what that means. How did he give him? To die. 
God so loved the world that he gave his son to die for sinners. That's what that means. Or Jesus himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's a purpose clause. What's the purpose? That is death. I came to die for sinners. Or Luke, all four gospels, Luke, where Jesus said the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. To seek and to save sinners. To seek and to save. How is he going to seek and save them? Through his death. That's what he means. So the reason Jesus came 2,000 years ago primarily was to die. And here for two plus years, he hasn't even been talking about his resurrect or his death, his crucifixion, and the meaning of his death with his apostles. Amazing. So major transition in his ministry right here. He's going to start talking about the church. He's going to start talking about his death. The apostles, they, they are not prepared at this point. That's why Jesus has to prepare them. This is, this is news to them. They are oblivious to this. So let's go ahead and look at our four-point outline here in, to help us better understand and make sure we understand the meaning of Jesus' death. We need to. And there are four ways that Jesus is trying to help his apostles understand the meaning of, the, of his death because they don't understand his death at all. Up to this point, they don't know that he's going to die or they don't understand the meaning of his death, the necessity of his death. They don't even know, as far as we know, we don't even know if the apostles understand the mode of his execution. They don't know he's going to die. They don't even know how he's going to die. In other words, they don't know he's going to be crucified. He hasn't been talking about it. They haven't been talking about crucifixion. They haven't been talking about nails in the hands. This is all foreign. They're not thinking that. It's a foreign concept. And that's their frame of mind here. So you can see when we get there, when he unveils it, how shocking, eye-opening, alarming, even scandalous this idea is. As Jesus reveals not only his death, the meaning of his death, and also the method of his death, or he alludes to the method of his death, here and then also in Matthew chapter 20 for the first time. And so we have to understand the meaning of his death. And I, I think I said this already, that when people want to get baptized here at our church, it's very simple. Do you understand? We sit down with them and do you understand the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel, the good news? And at the heart of that is you have to, to tell the meaning of Jesus' death because that's the gospel. First Corinthians 15 says this is the gospel, that Jesus, first verb, is died. You don't have to just know the fact of it. You have to know the meaning of his death. That's a deeper question. And I often ask people after they say, yeah, Jesus died. I believe he died. He had to die. And then the next question, a little deeper, is, well, why did he have to die for sin? Meaning, how come uh, God the Father couldn't have just sent Jesus here to the world as the Savior and to jump over the Grand Canyon to secure forgiveness for everybody? I mean, that's, that's pretty hard to do. Actually, I've never seen anybody do it. Pretty miraculous. So how come that wasn't sufficient? Jesus comes down and he jumps the Grand Canyon on behalf of sinners. Why do you have to die instead? And that's the heart of the gospel or the issue. God's nature. Well, he's holy. He can't tolerate sin. He must punish sin. We are evil. We are wicked. We are sinful. We deserve death from a holy God. Somebody needs to die because of our sin. Jesus came down as the God-man, the eternal God, willingly to die in the place of sinners so that they won't absorb and receive the full wrath of god the father who deserves to punish them and he died on the cross in their place as a substitute to alleviate god's wrath and to give them total forgiveness and to make them righteous before a holy god that they might be saved so death 
And the theology of death is at the heart of the gospel. And we, we have got to know what that means and understand that. I'm just telling you right now. These 12 apostles had no idea what that meant. Zero. If you were to ask Peter at this time, if you go back in history, way up, you go from uh, 24 miles south of the Sea of Galilee and here Jesus takes his 12 apostles to get away from the crowds and to get away from his enemies and to get some private time for teaching and for prayer, says the Gospel of Luke in the parallel passage here. In a secluded area so they can be focused on these things. And if you were to talk to the 12 apostles of Jesus at this time here in Caesarea Philippi, they're at the, the shadows and the foot of the great Mount Hermon there. Hey, Peter... uh, I understand you, you like Jesus, you follow Jesus. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He, yeah, he's my master. He's my Lord. Been following him for two and a half years. Why did he come? Well, he's the Messiah. What does that mean? Well, he's the conqueror. Man, we are going to overthrow Rome. It's going to be sweet. I can't wait. I'm gearing up for it. Man, even Judas, he's all hyped up about it, too. Oh, oh, whoa. Yeah, well, yeah, he's coming as the Messiah. But uh, isn't he also, didn't he also come to die on the cross? Peter would say, what are you talking about? Where'd that come from? That has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus and his mission and why we are following him. Okay, so that's the mindset of the apostles. Let's go ahead and look at the text. Point number one is understanding the death of Jesus Christ, the meaning of his death. We looked at verse 13 to 17, and that was uh, to be a disciple. We've got to understand his divine person, that he is the son of God, and we just explained. That means he is deity. He is God. He is eternal. He's one with the Father. He's one with the Spirit. He's an uncreated being. He has always been around. He is the creator. He is the judge. He is the Savior. He's the only Savior. He is the rock. He's the only rock. He is one in essence and nature with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are the triune God. Jesus deserves worship. Jesus demands worship. This is Jesus. He's the only one that can forgive sins. That's what we mean by he is the Son of God. He is deity if you have any kind of lesser view of jesus you cannot be a disciple you cannot be saved that was the point in the first section then verses 18 to 20 and understanding the death of jesus the heart of the gospel number two understanding the redeeming purpose to purchase sinners you got to understand why this god man came he didn't come to just be a good teacher he didn't come to be an exemplary rabbi he didn't come to be a good model for the rest of us he didn't come to be a social worker or a philosopher, or a do-gooder, or a moral expert, or simply an educator. He came to die. It's the number one reason. Jesus came to die, subject himself to death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness from a holy God. And so he lays out the plan and the mechanism by which God will now save sinners from this day forward, moving on till the end of this history as we know it. And that is that God is going to use the the conduit or the channel of the institution of the church to do that. There is no message of the gospel outside of the church in terms of Jesus' divine revelation that has been trusted to the church, the church of Christ, the church of God. Jesus Christ died for the church. He shed his blood to, to build the church. The church is the precious bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church. The church is the pillar of the truth. The the church is the guardian of God's truth. The church is the one responsible with the one message of proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. The church is the only institution today on earth that was created by God and not by man. It's the only institution on earth that will continue throughout all 
history in perpetuity without ever being undermined by anything. It's the beloved, blessed church of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says here and unveils it. And that's what the rest of the New Testament is about. And people are confused about the church. The church is not a building. The word church occurs over 100 times in the New Testament, never refers to a building. The church is the people. The church is the saints, those who know Jesus Christ. So that is an emphatic message Jesus lays out here. This is new truth to these 12 apostles. Prior to this, they're thinking Israel, the covenant of the Old Testament, the people of Moses, the synagogue. No, new truth. No, not the synagogue. New thing. Ecclesia, the assembly, my assembly, Jesus assembly, the church. It is unique. It is distinct. It's being created for the first time. He is the Lord of the church, the head of the church, the senior pastor of the church, the savior of the church. That's what he's trying to get laid down in their mind. And again, they don't quite understand this yet. The light hasn't gone on yet. They're not going to understand it until after the resurrection and the ascension. How do we know that? Because, well, today's Palm Sunday. We just read a passage from John 12 uh, about Palm Sunday. And that's when Jesus is purposing to go to Jerusalem because here he said, I got to go to Jerusalem. That's our passage today. We are headed to Jerusalem for a very specific purpose, mainly to die as the Savior and then rise again. So when Jesus, a few months later, actually gets to the brink of Jerusalem, he's about to enter the city and he's preparing his apostles. Okay, here we go, guys, going to Jerusalem. And it was a feast day. It was Passover week. There are hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world concentrated now in Jerusalem for the feast to celebrate the Passover. And here comes the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ in the flesh on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. The crowd see him. They hail him and they literally shout out Hosanna to the king. Sounds like a glorious scene. Welcome, Jesus. You are Messiah. You are king. In fulfillment of the Old script, Old Testament scriptures. The irony was that it says the whole city went out to greet him. And then it make, John makes a little comment that nobody knew what they were doing. Especially his disciples. They had no idea what was going on until after his death and resurrection. It's the same fickle mob, the whole city, going out to greet him on Sunday, saying, Hosanna, that five days later will shout out with their fists in the air, crucify him. Same ones. So let's go on to point three and four. Understanding the death of Jesus in order to be a true disciple of Christ. We've got to understand number three, 21 to 23, and that's knowing the Father's plan. Well, what is his plan regarding Jesus? Well, I put it according to the scriptures in fulfillment of scripture. There has been now 4,000 years of God's history in the scripture from Genesis to Malachi of God preparing the world and his people and Israel and the leaders of Israel that a Messiah is coming. He will reign as king. He will forgive sin. He will reign as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. It will be glorious. He is powerful. He is sinless. He's a fulfillment of all the shadows in the Old Testament. He will be judge. He will be savior. And he must die. Oops, they didn't get that last part. It's there in scripture, but they missed it. Peter and the apostles, they were Jews. They grew up in the synagogue. They grew up studying uh, the Mosaic law, the Torah. 
It was there. They knew it. Some of it they probably had memorized. They may have diagrammed it in Hebrew in their grammar classes in elementary school. And yet they missed the message, the significance of it, that the Messiah must die. It's all over the Bible. That's what they missed. So we got to know the Father's plan that Jesus came to die, and he came to die for sin, to appease a holy God. And this is according to Scripture. Let's go ahead and look at verses 21 to 23. So we got good news. The apostles are happy. Jesus just blessed Peter because Peter said a great thing. They said, Jesus asked him, quiz question, okay, who am I? And Peter spoke up first among the 12 apostles and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the God man. You are Messiah. You're the living one in accordance with the Old Testament prophecies. And Jesus said, amen. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, Peter. You got it right. And by the way, Peter Human intuition, human education, human tradition, human ingenuity did not reveal this truth to you. Uh, my Father in heaven revealed that truth to you. Peter, it's divine revelation. It didn't come from yourself. It came from outside. It was God the Father who immediately gave that truth to you through the power of the Holy Spirit as divine revelation. Don't forget that, Peter. In other words, Peter shouldn't be clap, uh, patting himself on the back for being a mouthpiece for God. But he is blessed for revealing that great truth. So going back to point three, knowing the Father's plan according to Scripture, 21 to 23, this great truth is revealed. Jesus says, I'm going to build the church on the rock. Peter, you're going to be a part of it, my blessed church. I'm going to give you guys authority. They like to hear that. Right on. You're the Messiah. You're the all-powerful one. Oh, good. And you're going to give us some of that, that power, that authority. Oh, yeah, that's Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 9. We get the, the saints will reign with him. Oh, good. We get the keys. We get the power. We get the authority. The power will be taken away from the Romans. The power will be taken away from the antagonistic Sanhedrin. Thank you, Jesus. Probably what they're thinking. But he just revealed this reality of the church. This is good stuff. Then he makes a transition, uh, 21 to 23. After he tells them, okay, okay, guys, uh, for the next three to six months, I'm just kind of filling in the blanks here. Um, don't tell anybody everything I just told you. Don't, tell, don't go telling people uh, about the church. Why? Because it hasn't started yet. Don't go tell You can't say, come visit my church. It doesn't exist. Uh, don't go telling people what I just told you about uh, my identity as the God-man and the fact that I claim to be God in a body, don't tell people that why, because they wouldn't believe that message and they'd try to kill him on the spot. He can't die ahead of time. There's a strategic time to die. And this, by the way, that's the reason the leadership of the Jews killed him for what was the charge in the end? They tried to make up a bunch of charges and they didn't fly. And in the end, the high priest came up with one that stuck. Blasphemy. This man claims to be one with God. Instant death. So Jesus says, whoa, okay, shh, don't tell anybody yet. It's not time. So then here's the transition, verse 21. From that time on, there it is, from that time forward. In other words, he's focused. The next three to six months, this is the emphasis in his teaching. From that time on, what? Well, Jesus began to show his disciples, meaning he hasn't been doing this for two and a half years. He hasn't been showing them about the church. He hasn't been talking about his death. This is new. 
He alluded to his death at times very rarely. It was veiled. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. That's veiled. That was very rare. And nobody knew what he was saying when he said it. From that time on, Jesus began to show, deliberately show, he purposed to show. Mark chapter 8 gives us a little more detail that this was an extended discourse he gave on this truth. As he was explaining it, it wasn't in just one sentence. This could have been a two-hour Bible study. And he's going in chronological order of what needs to happen as he's heading to Jerusalem. And it crescendos and reaches its apex with a message that Peter just can't handle. So from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. Must is a very key word, even though it's a small Greek word. It is that it's the divine must. It is the will of God. It has to happen. Nothing else can happen. Nothing can derail this plan. Anything that tries to derail this plan, this must is satanic or humanistic. These must happen. In other words, these are the will of God. That's what must day in Greek means. The following must happen. We can't deviate from it. From this time forward, Jesus began to show his apostles that or his disciples that he must first go to Jerusalem. Okay, guys, we're headed to Jerusalem now. That's our faces toward Jerusalem. We're putting Galilee, Nazareth behind us. We've covered all those cities. They've heard the message. Now we're going back to Jerusalem. And the apostles are probably thinking, uh-oh, we are never well received in Jerusalem. It always gets contentious in Jerusalem. It gets life-threatening in Jerusalem. This is what they're thinking. Jesus, what are you thinking? So from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So that's the first must. He must go to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus will die. That's where Jesus rise again from the dead. That's where Jesus will ascend into heaven. That's where Jesus will start the church. That's where the apostles will begin the first church. That's where the first church will exist for the first five years and then become a satellite to the rest of the world. And it is at Jerusalem where Jesus will return. Very, we must go to Jerusalem. And Jesus must suffer many things. Whoa, wait. They kind of probably didn't even hear this. Suffer many things. And if they did hear it, they weren't thinking what Jesus was thinking and what Jesus knew about how the Messiah would suffer. Mark and Luke say not only would he suffer many things, he would also be rejected. He must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. What things was he going to suffer? They were in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And they happened, every single one of them, as he entered into Jerusalem the last week of his life during Passover week. This week that we are in, starting with Palm Sunday. Suffer many things. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over. Well, what, what things? Well, just a couple months later, he's getting closer to Jerusalem, and he tells them point blank the things he's going to suffer. Uh, this is in Matthew, listen to this, 20, verses 17 to 19. Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, so now they're actually close to Jerusalem. Near the point of his death, he took the 12 apostles or disciples aside by themselves, and he's going to remind them. Remember what I said three months ago over there at uh, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi? Now he's going to give more detail. Remember that? And they're like, no. And on the way, Jesus said to them, behold. Then hold on, guys. Get a load of this. Behold. We are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, me, will be delivered to the chief priest scribes and they will condemn him to death. Get more specific. Verse 19. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. That's even more specific. To mock him. 
to scourge him, to crucify him. There is the first revelation of how he would die to his apostles. By the cross. That had to be devastating. And on the third day will rise again. Crucify? Crucifixion? They only thought one thing. No, wait. The book of Deuteronomy says uh, only one kind of person is crucified on a tree or a cross. And that is the most vile, evil, wicked, lowliest, despicable sinner who deserves death. That's the only kind of person who is crucified. And Jesus is thinking, exactly. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. I'm going to hang on a tree. I am going to be crucified on behalf of sin. They, they didn't get it. Going back to Matthew 16. So those are the things that he would suffer. His beard's going to be pulled out. He's going to be punched in the face, smacked upside the head with a rod. This is described in the Gospels. Spit upon, mocked. So he will be, then when Mark and Luke add that he's going to be rejected by the, the leadership, that means they will reject him formally, the leadership, as the Messiah, as the one in the scriptures. Who's going to do all this to him? Well, it's the Jewish tribunal, the Jewish authorities. It says right here, it gets specific. We're going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things. We'll be rejected by the elders. Who's that? These are the respected Jewish leaders who have risen to power. And many times of all communities, every Jewish community had an elder or a plurality of elders. And they were civic leaders. And many times they were judges. That's who this is. And the most prominent of the elders rose to the power of being a candidate for the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the 70 members of the Supreme Court of Jerusalem that reigns down in Jerusalem. The elders. These are a powerful, authoritative, respected men by the Jewish community. So that's, and they have, they're going to wield all this power. Uh, they are going to reject, the elders are going to reject Jesus. Who else is going to reject him? The chief priests. Who are the chief priests? Well, in the Old Testament, there's supposed to be one high priest for life. That was distorted, twisted. Now they got like four or five priests, chief priests. And they were all family members. So you got some big time nepotism going on. Ananias, Annas, all those guys. There's a plurality of them. What was their responsibility? They had the authority over the temple and all of worship. So they were localized to Jerusalem. The elders were all over Israel. So they knew the people, had the respect of the people. So this was strategic. Elders, chief priests, the scribes, who were they? The scribes is, first began in the Old Testament. They were legit. Uh, they were the students of the law. Actually, they were religious lawyers. You think lawyer today, you don't think Bible. But here in the Bible, the lawyers were the masters of the written law of Moses. Not just Moses, the whole Old Testament, the scribes. It was his responsibility to know. In other words, a scribe in Jesus' day was like a walking Bible concordance. You didn't need Bible gateway. You just ask the scribe, okay, where is, say, say you were living in Jesus day and you want to know, okay, let's see. And you call all the scribes together and yeah, some of those chief priests as well. And you ask them a spontaneous question. So where does the uh, Old Testament scriptures say that the Messiah would be born? And then the scribes will consult instantaneously. Oh, uh, it says right here in the prophet, Micah 5, 2, he shall be born in Bethlehem. So the scribes would know that. How do I know? Because that's what Matthew chapter two says. Herod asked that question. He gathered the scribes together and asked them that question. And instantaneously, they knew. Isn't that ironic that the chief in, in uh, Matthew 2, I think it's verse 4, where Herod asks the scribes and the chief priests. Wait, right here, our verse today. 
Who's going to reject him? The scribes and the chief priests will reject the Messiah. That means, and Herod's asking the scribes and the chief priests because he knows their authorities on the Old Testament. They know the details, not just the nuances of a specific prophecy regarding the coming Messiah. They knew. And they just spouted it out. Oh, the Messiah, he will be born in Bethlehem. Full knowledge. Same scribes. Same chief priest family right here are the ones that are going to reject Jesus Christ. So they're knowing with, they are culpable with full knowledge of what the Bible says. They know that the Old Testament says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They know that the Messiah would be uh, crucified and die on behalf of the people. They knew Isaiah 53 and all those other prophecies. They knew this. There is no excuse. But these are the ones that are going to reject Jesus Christ. All they ever had to do was ask Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you claim to be Messiah. You claim to be son of God. You claim to be the savior of the world. All they had to ask him was, were you born in Bethlehem? They never did that. Never did that. Ironically. Oh, we know where you're from. You're from Nazareth. Does any good thing come out of Nazareth? You're you're a bastard child. All they had to do was ask, do you qualify? Were you born in Bethlehem? And he could say, yeah. The city of David could have verified it. They chose not to because of their sin. Elders, chief priests, and then the scribes, the law keepers, uh, suffer many things. They'll, they will reject me as the Messiah. Formally, as the leadership of Israel, they will reject me. Not only that, it says he will be condemned. And then our passage here says he will be killed. Notice it doesn't say crucified. It just says killed. Now, when Jesus says, okay, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer a lot. And I'm going to be killed by the Jewish leadership at the temple then the apostles just they couldn't believe this was shocking this was alarming and it finally sunk in i'm going to be killed and be raised on the third and oh and the good news by the way it's not all bad news i will be killed and be raised on the third day i will die and then i will come back to life three days later isn't that awesome no says peter you will be, he will be killed, raised on the third day. And then the apostles are thinking, no, Messiah doesn't die. And Peter expresses that. So Peter speaks up on behalf of the other apostles. So while Jesus is teaching on this matter, and he gets to the crescendo that Jesus came to die and be raised on the third day, it says, verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside. Literally, there they are. Jesus is teaching in the middle of a Bible study. And Peter gets up out of his desk and just lunges at Jesus and literally grabs him. And ushers him away from the rest of the crowd to the side. All the while, he is continuing to rebuke Jesus for what he just said. Imagine that in a Sunday school class. Bible teacher up there, and you get out of your chair, and you go up, and you just grab him, and you pull him away from his pulpit. And then you're dragging him all to the, the door of the classroom. And the other students, can you imagine, in alarm, just watching what is going on. And rebuking and chiding the Bible teacher, that's what Peter's doing. He literally took him aside. And then we, we rip on Peter and say, oh, Peter, he does this all the time. He's so uh, emotional and out of balance, and he's always opening his mouth. And the only reason Peter had at least the courage to do it, all the other 11 guys wanted to do it. They're sissies. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. The same kind, it's, this is the severest kind of rebuke. This is what this, the same kind of rebuke where Jesus would rebuke Satan or demons in, inside demon-possessed people. He rebuked the winds and they calmed. Same word. It's emphatic. And Peter's just, he is just laying into Jesus the Savior. And here's what he said. Saying, God forbid or mercy me. 
God, have mercy on your ignorant soul. Jesus, you do not know what you are talking about. This is death is not consistent with the role of the Messiah. That's what he means. God forbid, may no way, far be it from the Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus didn't tolerate it very long because he cut Peter off at the pass. Just cut him off. And as he's being dragged along by Peter, it says, in I think either the Gospel of Mark or Luke in a parallel passage, it says, then Jesus turned to the other disciples. So now Peter is in front of him right here. And then the other 11 apostles are behind Peter in earshot. They can hear this. This shall never happen to you. What is Peter saying here? Jesus, you're not going to die. You can't die. You're not supposed to die. This isn't the plan. I don't like it. I don't want it. When in reality, no, this is the plan. I don't care if you want it. You don't get it. This is God's plan. This is the will of God. Peter, you should know this. You're a Jew. Your Bible is the Old Testament. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's all Genesis 3.15. The Messiah must die. Peter, it's there. You know this. Psalm 22, a thousand years before Christ. The entire chapter is a, a detailed graphic description of how the Messiah would die. He pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. How graphic is that? Psalm 22 is a graphic description of the death of the Messiah. And then Isaiah 53 is the theology of the death of the Messiah. And they go together beautifully. Isaiah 53. Uh, Peter, you should know this. You memorized it in uh, Saturday school class at synagogue. The Messiah will be crushed. He will be crucified. He will bear the iniquities of us all. The Messiah must die. He must propitiate the sin of humanity before a holy God. Isaiah 53. It's there. Peter. Peter had no idea. Peter didn't know the meaning of Isaiah 53. Peter had absolutely no clue about Isaiah 53. Had Peter ever read Isaiah 53? Yes. Did he understand its significance and implications? No. Peter had no need for the death of Jesus. And here, ironically, the reason Jesus came into the world was to die. And he's the head apostle. Talk about missing the boat. Well, we can't pound on Peter too hard for too long. Because verse 23, so Jesus turns, he says to Peter, who's immediately in front of him, and the apostles who are behind him, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Literally, be gone, Satan, or literally, get out of here, Satan. This is amazing. Was Peter Satan? No. Was uh, Peter demon-possessed? No. Was Peter influenced by the lies of Satan? Yes. That's what was going on here. This was a demonic truth. This is a satanic truth. This was a lie that was trying to undermine the greatest truth of all. That's why it's satanic. Not every lie or white lie or misconception or wrong understanding is a sat- an overtly satanic attack on the truth. But this was of the utmost. Get behind me, Satan. How more alarming is that you are a stumbling block to me you are a scandal to me you're a scandalon to me you're a scandal peter what's that scandal on the greek word you had an animal trap and you put the animal trap out to catch your rat or whatever you wanted to catch small rodent or varmint could have been a bigger one as well 
usually like a box. You turn the box upside down, and then you got to lift the box up on one end and, and get it to stand up. And maybe you'd put a, a, a thin stick on this end to kind of hold the box up, and then you put food in there, and then when it hits the stick, boom, it hits the scandal, then the box falls down. The scandal is what triggers the trap. Like in a rat trap, that wiry thing that you pull back, and then you put the cheese on that little thing, the thing you pull back and the thing you put cheese on, that's the scandal. The rest of it is the trap. And Jesus sees this for what it is. This isn't just Peter's ignorance. This is a satanic attack on God's plan. And Jesus is discerning. He knows that. Get behind me, Satan. I am not going to be derailed in my mission that the Father has given me. And I must die for the sins of the world. His apostles, they don't understand this. They need to hear it, though. Jesus has to start literally hammering away with these guys because they're not going to get it through their thick skulls for the next three to six months. And he keeps repeating it. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And from here on, the four gospels, every time he says that from here on out, says the apostles, they didn't get it. They were afraid to ask. They were talking about it. They didn't know what he meant. John 12, they weren't sure what he was talking about, but he's, he's laying the foundation. He keeps imparting divine revelation, divine truth. So that at some point, the Spirit of God works in conjunction with the, church, the truth they've accumulated over time as they heard the Word of God. And then with the help of God's Spirit, uh, opens their understanding and opens their heart so they can fully understand a great spiritual truth for the first time. Ever happened to you? Happened to me. If you're a Christian, that happens to you. It happened to you when you got saved. It happens to you as you're a Christian growing in your sanctification. As Christians, do we ever have to have God hammer away again and again and again and again on our head and our understanding? Yes is the correct answer. Peter even writes about that in his epistle. I know I've told you this before, and I know I've told you this before. You know what? I'm going to tell you again. Why did Peter say that? <laughs> he knows. That was him. And before you bash on Peter too much, the fact that Peter didn't understand the meaning of Jesus' death, Peter had no use for the death of Jesus Christ. He didn't think it was significant to the ministry of Jesus Christ at this point in his life, but he got the message. So much so that when Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, appears to the 12 apostles, imparts more truth, then he leaves the sins. Then he empowers these 12 apostles with the Spirit of God. The Spirit comes upon them. They are dwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter receives a full understanding of everything Jesus had taught him for three and a half years. That's why the Gospel of John gives a specific promise to the apostles only. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and he will teach you and remind you of all things that I taught you. That is not a promise for every Christian. That was a promise to the apostles. And Peter was the beneficiary of that. And from day one, when the church began, the Spirit was upon him. He understood the true meaning of Jesus' death. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to a very different Peter on the day of Pentecost as he's preaching to thousands of Jews who are in the audience in Acts chapter 2. Compare this with the Peter we just heard, the ignorant Peter, the short-sighted Peter. It's a new Peter now, Acts 2, 23. He concludes, he preaches the gospel. Then he gets to the heart of the gospel, which is about Jesus and why he came and why he was born and that he must die. And then Jesus says this, this, this Jesus, this Savior, verse 23, this man, Jesus, was delivered over. He was crucified. He had to die, says Peter. Why? According to who? By the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. What an admission. 
boy, Peter had graduated. What a difference. Not only did it need to happen, Peter understands the fullness of it. You know what? Not only does this need to happen, this was God the Father's plan for all eternity. It had to happen. Jesus had to die by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross, putting him to death. Oh, look at another sermon shortly thereafter, Acts chapter 3, verse 18. Does Peter understand now the significance of Jesus' death? And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance when you killed Jesus. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the apostles, that this Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Jesus had to die in accordance with Scripture. And just Peter goes on. Then the beautiful thing, when you get to First Peter, his epistle near the end of his death, and he talks about the necessity of Jesus' death and why there is no salvation apart from Christ's death on behalf of sinners. And then you know who he quotes? Isaiah 53. Jesus had to die because Isaiah said so. Take that. Look what I learned. So Peter got it. Christians grow in their knowledge. This is true of all of us. So it's the irony here in this passage, in verse 16 and 17, you got this, this Peter who blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Amen. That is, so there's, jesus uh peter's divine thinking and then just in the same context a few minutes later you can't die and jesus says now you're thinking like satan so in a span of just a few minutes there's peter who is a christian or he's a believer he's a follower a lover of jesus at this time the same person the same incident the same scene he is he has divine thinking and he has demonic thinking i am so glad that we don't have to do that today No, actually, we do, don't we? As Christians, that's our struggle. That's something we should learn from. As believers, we have divine thinking, and there are times where we have satanic thinking. Really? Christians? Yes. Christians can have demonic thinking. Really? Why do you say that? Just one example. First Timothy, Paul says, talking to Christians, he just gives one example. If you have a wrong, distorted view of marriage, And if you have a wrong, distorted view about how to get saved through asceticism and doing good works and abstaining from meats and foods, that is wrong. Those are gifts from God. Those are actually the doctrines of demons that you're holding to. He's talking to Christians. We can be susceptible to that. The idea or the worst example of satanic thinking is that it's okay to kill a baby in the womb. How do we know that? Because who's the author of death? It's Satan himself. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. One of the names of Satan himself is Apollyon, the destroyer. That's his greatest weapon. If a Christian thinks that abortion is okay, it's to be tolerated and funded, that's satanic thinking. It's of the devil. So we, we struggle with this, all of us do. It'd be embarrassing. I think if Jesus or God scratched hard enough on all of us, he would reveal some of our satanic thinking. And many times it's not willing. We're ignorant. And we've got to be absorbed in the word of God. The only divine thoughts we're going to have are the ones that come out of the Bible. That's it. So he turns to Peter, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. For you. And you're not setting your mind on God's uh, interest, but man, you're thinking humanly. You're not thinking according to God, his divinely revealed truth, the Bible. That's all he means. If you want to think like God, get your nose in the word, in scripture, the Bible. These are God's thoughts putting down in writing for us. Apart from it, we think humanly, we think demonically. And we're all susceptible. So knowing the Father's plan according to Scripture, absolutely essential. And then 
just going to the practical application from Jesus' point of view, and that's verses 24 to 26, considering the eternal prophet denying self. If you want to be a true disciple of Jesus, you have to deny yourself. And so his transition here in verse 24. So Peter can't believe it. Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to, I'm going to get killed. And Peter freaks out. Jesus, you are not going to die. Absolutely not. And then Jesus says, well, hey, wait a minute here. Get behind me. He said, get out of here. You're thinking demonically. And not only do I have to die, Peter, if you're going to follow me, you have to die too. Ouch. That's verses 24 to 26. Let's look at it and close with it. Because this is true of all of us. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of God, a born-again Christian, forgiven forever, adopted into the family of God, knowing God personally, having Jesus as your Savior, having your eternity secure in the hand of God. There's only one way to do it by being a disciple, and it, it means denying self, whatever that means. And Jesus explains it. So, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples or his apostles, not only do I have to die, but if anyone wishes to come after me, you want to keep being a real apostle? You want to be a real follower of me, Peter? Keep in mind, who else is in the crowd here? Judas. Okay, we got three months to go before the cross. This, this, put, this was a catalyst for Judas to probably engage in new thinking and his new plan. Wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. Death? That was never in the equation. So this is a warning. Then Jesus said to his disciples, and this kind of warning will always vet out the true from the false. Always. Christian life is hard. You'll be persecuted if you're a Christian. You must deny yourself to become a disciple of mine. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes, if anyone, anyone, that's who we preach the gospel to, anyone who's willing to hear, anyone wishes to come after me, to follow me, to identify with me, to be in my family, to be saved by me, to claim me as Lord, he must deny himself. So you've got to have the right view about Jesus, but you have to have the right view about self. You have to deny yourself. This is not salvation by works. When Jesus said this, he also said this in Matthew 10 to the same group of guys. You want to follow me, be my disciple, be my apostle, you got to deny yourself. What do you mean by that? Positively, you got to love me more than anything you love anything else. That was Matthew 10. Love me more than you love your family. Love me more than you love your parents. Love me more than you love your spouse. That's what he said. That's what it means to deny yourself, among other things. If anyone wishes to come after me, be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross. Wait, whoa, wait a minute. This is the first time they've heard this. Cross, they're thinking crucifixion. That's what the Romans do. Cross, that's death. They weren't thinking cross the way we do. Jesus wasn't crucified yet. That was, that was execution. Literally dying. I mean, I need to be willing to die for you, Jesus? Well, the apostles, yes, because that was their calling. They all died, except for John. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Very simple. Verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, what does it mean to deny self and follow Jesus? It means the opposite of is, well, to deny self is to serve self, to love self, to please self, to prefer self, to protect self to trust self, to love self, to have confidence in self, to be pleased with self. That's what it means. That's the opposite. To deny self is to love self, 
To deny self is to give all loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ and to God. That's all it means. Your number one goal in life and motivation, hopefully, is to please God, to love God, to find pleasure in what gives him pleasure in terms of obedience. And that's hard. That's impossible for us to do on our own. It only comes through the power of the truth of the gospel and embracing that. And then that blessed gift after you get saved is the Holy Spirit who God gives to us to live in us, to help us actually pursue that and at times actually fulfill that. And probably the greatest thing that deny self means is to acknowledge that you and me, we are pathetic, lowly, evil, wicked sinners who deserve punishment from a holy God, punishment through physical death and punishment through, get this, eternal death in hell forever. That is the essence of what it means to deny self, a proper view of self. The world finds this message despicable and unacceptable. But it's the message of Jesus Christ. It's the key. Ironically, it's the key to the good news. You can't get your sins forgiven until you realize the problem. You can't have the cure without the diagnosis. That's why Jesus came. Well, that's horrible news. No, there's good news. That is horrible news. There's better news. Jesus came to die for your sin. And he got punished by God the Father and absorbed all of God the Father's holy wrath upon himself so that you don't have to receive any wrath from God. All of your sins shall be forgiven and you will be adopted forever into the family of God. Isn't that good news? That is the gospel message. That's the message of Christianity. That is the heart and soul of what Palm Sunday, Passion Week, and Easter Resurrection Sunday is all about. And we have the privilege of this week on Friday, if you're available, to come and worship with us just for one hour, being reminded of the meaning of Jesus' death on Good Friday. And we'll celebrate communion together as well. And then three days later, we will rise again for Resurrection Sunday on Easter. And here at GBF, we have a little bit of a treat celebrating the resurrection traditionally uh, we don't have Sunday school class. We cancel Sunday school because Jesus rose early, so we get to sleep in. <laughs> One of the benefits of resurrection. But anyway, so we're looking forward to that. So if you're a believer, live in light of the grace and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his gospel on your behalf. And may he motivate us to share that wonderful, blessed news with those around us that don't know him. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the good news that you sent up good and blessed savior to save sinners by grace through faith we give you all the glory we thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about grace bible fellowship please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009